it's interesting because, you know, I started talking to my wife about that when I started the job. And I was like, you know, before I could always say, like, oh, I didn't agree with that decision. And look what happened. <laughs> totally. Or like, oh, if, that, if we'd only done that or that analyst had only done that, I can't hide behind any of that stuff anymore. And one of my big realizations as a first-time CEO is exactly that. Like, I must be accountable for everything. I must be accountable for every mistake you know, for every moment of indecision, for every flinch, for every stall, you're absolutely right, it falls on me. That was a clip from today's guest, Jonathan Anastas. Uh, this is a fun conversation. Jonathan and I already did one episode, like back in the early days of the podcast, that was super cool. Because it's like, you know, you get to meet someone who you grew up listening to their band and also has had this incredible career, but then you meet them and they're actually like a cool person. So that was like an awesome conversation. But so much has happened between then and now, uh, we thought it'd be a great time to bring him back on and have uh, another conversation about all the things that have happened during the pandemic and since that have led to changes in his career and his personal life. Um, I always love speaking to people who are accomplished business people and also from the punk scene. Because for me, it's always this like, you've applied so much what you learn in punk and hardcore to building a career. And he's just a great example of that. But before we get to the episode, please rate, review, and subscribe. Really appreciate it if you do. My name is Aram Arslanian, and this is One Step Beyond. Jonathan, welcome back. Thanks for having me. For the uninitiated, for the people who don't know, who are you and what do you do? Jonathan Anastas. I'm the chief executive officer of Clash TV, a streaming platform for high passion sports. And I used to play in a number of hardcore bands. And I've been in the marketing space for a little bit before that. I'll go to the hardcore thing first because obviously it's like, you know, a huge passion of mine. You didn't play in some hardcore bands. You played in some of the most historically some of the most relevant bands so dys and slapshot around your career though like you've done some stuff man like you've really played in major major companies for a long time i like how you said it because you got to like just package it nice and small but you've done some serious stuff tell us about clash tv and how you got there clash tv's a live streaming platform for high passion sports we're starting with street basketball where we've rolled up the top 15 leagues in new york and some really high profile leagues around the country, including the Drew League in Los Angeles, which is their 50th anniversary as a basketball league. And it's really been an honor to share in that 50th with them. But based around the concept that in this time of like great media disruption, right? We're talking about a world where like the guilds are on strike and the streamers are losing billions and cable cutting has never been in a bigger place that you know, people have left cable television. Cable television was the home for most sports, regional sports networks. And so the postulate really is, as people leave cable, if you're the NFL, the NBA, MLB, you're gonna end up on Amazon, you're gonna end up on Apple. My last employer, where I was global chief marketing officer, won championship, went from linear TV to Amazon Prime. Over my tenure with the company, we could see where the world is going. Today, if you're one level below that, you don't have a home on cable television. Your younger fan base isn't there. The cable carriers can't afford to pay you. Bally's Sports Network's in Chapter 11, owing like 20 teams money. 
And so these companies are going to have to find a direct-to-consumer platform, and we'd like to be a solution for that, to help connect these younger audiences with the sports that they love. Okay. What's a passion sport? A passion sport would be, to me, something like MMA, street basketball, it could be pickleball. It could be anything where, I mean, not unlike the kind of music that we grew up with, right? Where it's like, you know, when we started playing music, there was the kind of music you heard on the radio and there was the kind of music you had to seek out. You and I ended up playing the kind of music you had to seek out. I'm now in the world of finding homes for the sort of sports that people seek out. So around just the, well, first of all, like how long has this, uh, this been around? The platform has been around for a couple of years and two years into it, they decided that the founders wanted to find somebody with some experience in digital media, some experience in sort of like global sports to help them scale, and that's how we were introduced. All right, so this is your first time in the, in the big seat though, right? Yes, I'm not sure I'd characterize it as the big seat. It's my first time as a CEO, for sure. That's the big seat? Is that, what's the, what, is, what is not the big seat about it? Well, I mean, it's interesting. What I've learned in time is, you know, scale. I and mean, we can talk about that about my journey for the last couple of years, but you know, we are a company of 15 people, you know, trying to make an impact in the world, and I'm certainly CEO. I've spent time as like a VP or an SVP in companies of tens of thousands, yeah. right? So there's a lot of ways to define the big seat. You know, I, I spent six years at Activision, and they sold this year for $90 billion, you know? That was a big seat, right? Mm -hmm. It wasn't a CEO job, but it was a big seat with a lot of pressure and a lot of revenue pressure. Uh, the reason I call it the big seat, and it's not like from an ego perspective, it's not how many people you're leading, it's the like, there's no one to blame but you at the end. It's like, it is the space where it's like all accountability, all things land on you, you're the person. There's no one to look up and be like, well, you know, maybe like go upstairs and, and do that. It lands on you. And success, failure, all of it, you're accountable for. You are 100% right about it. It's, it's interesting because, you know, I started talking to my wife about that when I started the job. And I was like, you know, before I could always say, like, oh, I didn't agree with that decision. And look what happened. <laughs> totally. Or like, oh, if, that, if we'd only done that or that analyst had only done that, I can't hide behind any of that stuff anymore. And one of my big realizations as a first-time CEO is exactly that. Like, I must be accountable for everything. I must be accountable for every mistake you know, for every moment of indecision, for every flinch, for every stall, you're absolutely right, it falls on me. Yeah, and it's like, it's awesome, and it sucks. <laughs> I don't wanna speak to you, but I'll speak for me. So our company has 30 people, and I didn't take on the CEO title until like, I didn't wanna be like, I'm, I am the only person who works here, and I'm the CEO. Like, I didn't wanna do that. I was, like, technically the CEO. I waited until we had, I don't know, like, let's say 10 people working in the company. And now we have, with contractors, 30-ish, maybe 35 people in that, in that space. Why I love it is I love just creating and making things and following my gut or following my business sense and, or the combination of the two of them. I love all of that. What I don't like is whatever the mistake is, I have to see my accountability in it, no matter what. And even if it's something that's somehow removed from me, like it's within the business, but I wasn't directly involved, I have to understand, well, what is the thing that I did or didn't do that created the dynamic that that thing happened? And it is the most blameless job because you can't go around blaming people because you have to come back and be like, okay, how, what did I do that created this or what didn't I do that created this? Absolutely. You know, uh, we're, we're sitting here, I had very little sleep last night, right? Sort of coming back from a business trip to New York because I was, kept waking up thinking about this didn't get done, that get, didn't get done. Mm -hmm. 
it's you're you're 100 true so now that you've been in this role and how long have you been in the role since march okay so i'm sure there's some stuff that you can't talk about but what can you talk about like what's the game plan and let's say the next year so the game plan in the next year is a complete this year's street basketball season with like meaningful growth in terms of audience time spent engagement versus a prior year right you know we're out raising around well p l has become increasingly important in raising money where before you could get away with a bunch of growth charts yeah um growth is still important mm -hmm. growth is still at our stage of a company going to be a more meaningful metric than p l so I've got to deliver, you know, a 5x or a 10x in terms of audience growth for streetball. We're going to test the postulate in the fall that we can replicate this kind of audience around elite high school basketball. Hmm. You know, and if you can build that sort of high passion audience. But we live in a world now where, like, you know, LeBron James' kids end up with a Netflix deal, right? Post new NIL rules, which for people that don't know are name, image, and likeness. You know, stardom and monetization for an athlete can happen a lot earlier. So we're gonna test that theory. We're calling it a pilot. We're gonna try to do with street ball what we're doing with like the top 10 or 15, you know, high schools in the country. Mm -hmm. And we're returning to a place where I've spent some time MMA, because I believe that's another high passion sport. The change I'm kind of bringing to MMA is the cultural face of street basketball and MMA can look very, very different. I'm trying to find MMA leagues that share more of a cultural vibe and more diversity and, and that will hold together, you know, on an app setting with the street ball. You know, where we're looking at a couple of black owned MMA leagues, mm, cool. you know, with a higher percentage of fighters of color, you know, fights from different locales, you, you know, not your typical, you know, sort of UFC, big cage, you know, sort of setup. Very cool. Um, because you'd mentioned this a little bit earlier, and for people who are listening who don't understand rounds, when you're talking about rounds and like raising rounds, what can you share with from like a startup perspective of like raising raising funds from a round? Companies are can be bootstrapped, like your company, right? A lot of companies, especially in the last decade, have taken on outside money very early, right? And they've somehow long before me got ascribed like your first round's like a seed round then it's like an a round b round c round d round when i was at one championship i was there for our d round and our e round and at that point the numbers start looking like you're raising 100 million dollars you're raising 150 million dollars i mean it's crazy during my time at one championship our ceo and i was very much in the support role he raised the money he's one of the best fundraisers i've ever met in my life raised 250 million dollars during the pandemic, right? Wild. Y you know, th that world has had quite a bit of a reset, you know, since the back half of 2022. We're raising a much more modest early round. Yeah, and that idea of, of raising, um, uh, raising funds, it's like making people believers in what you're gonna do. Yes, because at this point, you're not buying a balance sheet, yeah. right? Especially at the stage of the company that Clash, that Clash TV's at, you're, you're buying, as, as it's been explained to me, people are buying an idea and a management team and potentially a sector, yeah. right? That those are the three biggest points. And I hear varying, you know, balances of those from varying VC. For some, the idea is first, the team is second. For others, the team is first, the idea is second. You know, there's been an old Silicon Valley thing. You don't want to, you know, invest in the fourth thing in a space, right? You want to invest in one of the first three things in a space. Though AI seems to be proving that differently, where we're now you know investing a hundred things deep in the space or yeah, yeah, yeah. two hundred yeah. things deep in the space, but you know they need to believe 
in our team, they need to believe in our idea, and they need to believe in our sector. And that, those are the defining rods, and they're some, somewhat soft factors versus like a, you know, a data room full of P&L and cash flow. So when you're out and you're, you're raising, you're going through these rounds, how much are you leaning into the showmanship of growing up in the punk scene? I'm not sure I'm leaning into the showmanship of growing up in the punk scene. What I'm leaning into, and we talked about this when I was on before, I, I think part of the thread for me is disruption. Yeah. And I think I was a musical disruptor, and I've, I've tried to be a business disruptor. And I'm leaning into the belief of disruption. And I'm leaning into, you know, this is another sort of typical thing. People want to hear about exits because investors want their money back, and they want their money back so to be honest, what I'm leaning in most is part of the team that sold Motor Trend on Demand to Discovery for $275 million in 2017, part of the team that took Live by Live public on NASDAQ in 2018 with a $40 million injection. I'm the board chair of taking Alpha Metaverse public on the CSE. You know, like, and part of the team, though Chachi was very much the lead on raising $250 million while I was at one, but this idea of like a proven track record of exits, like that's actually really the most powerful narrative you can give when you're raising money. Because ultimately, if the investor doesn't believe they can get their money back at a 10x multiple, they're, they, they're, not, they're not that excited about it. So going to the idea of a disruption, I'd agree. Like, I mean, we, when we talked about it last time, I was super captivated with what you're saying. But I'd also agree. It's like, yeah, you were part of like, a real musical disruption, not just how music was played and written, but like how the business of music was done. What's disruptive about what you're doing now? What's disruptive about what we're doing now? Well, streaming is certainly not new. Sports, was, live sports especially, was kind of the last bastion of the old media economy, right? So if you think about cord cutting's gone on forever, right? You know, like streaming's gone on forever. But the first thing that people left linear television for was drama, then comedy then comedy specials, then reality. And sports was like the last thing keeping people in, right? And then sports started leaving, right? Like the NFL is now on Amazon and, and Google, right? Like MLB is on Apple. And that it's like the last thing to leave linear television. And it's been increasingly disruptive, especially as you move down market to like these high passion sports, because again, Okay, Cable had already lost the NFL, but they were hanging on to like, you know, the AAA Baseball League and like, you know, the college athletics and all that stuff. And now, and now those places are looking for direct-to-consumer homes. And so it's the last bit of disruption. I mean, I, I think about, you know, I've been in the sports space since 2019. When I started at One Championship, our television deal in the U.S. was, was with Turner. And our, most of our television ratings around the world were linear. And when I left the company, our U.S. deal was with Amazon Prime. It's a very, very, very different model. Yeah, yeah. I know it's still, it sounds weird to say, but it's still relatively early days for like streaming. But we've already seen like streaming starting to lose tons of money and lose some ground. Is there a horizon where the next thing's going to pop up? I can't speak to the broad world of like premium streaming, right? I mean, I think... Streaming, like lots of other categories, leaned into a zero interest rate. Growth is everything. You know, I don't think those executives are as stupid as people are calling them out for now. To a large degree, the markets are to blame. The markets rewarded them for growth over everything, right? The markets gave Netflix their valuation, shedding billions of dollars in cash because growth was everything. 
the markets told them growth was everything. Like they didn't wake up in the morning and say growth is everything. They were rewarded for growth is everything. They were rewarded for making too many shows, yeah. right? And so I think we're just gonna see a retrenchment back to we're gonna make less content. Mm -hmm. We're gonna be more reasonable about what we spend on content. We're potentially gonna rebundle some things, right? And so you think about a lot of these companies have like two and three streaming services or that's two and three backends. You're already seeing it come together, right? You're already seeing like Paramount Plus and Showtime come together, right? You're already seeing like the Disney bundle of like, you know, Disney Plus, plus Max, plus ESPN Plus all coming together. And so it's retrenching, but it's, it's not going away. Yeah. What we all learn from the music business, the genie does not go back in the bottle. Ever. Definitely. The genie never goes back in the bottle. We may get a new genie, but the genie never goes back in the bottle. Well, I mean, case in point, like major labels didn't go away. You know, just the way that people have interacted with major labels and the artists interact with major labels. Like, you know, one of the things that I've loved, and I, we might have talked about this last time, is I love the idea that the singles have, that like a single has become a thing again. You know, and like artists just put out a lot of singles and there's kind of a move away from putting out full length records. They take too much time, they're too, they're not cost effective, you don't make enough money, but you can put out a ton of singles here and there. So major labels didn't go away. They got a sharp, like wake up call. They reorganized, they figured some stuff out and they're just doing things in a different way. Some ways really, really good, some ways not as good. And making more money than ever before. I did not know that, really. Major labels have never had higher valuations. Major labels have never had more income. You know, it's interesting because given the generation I'm from, I hear a lot of griping from musicians about the stream rate. Right. And I think that's like the false data point to fall on, mm -hmm. right? Because you can look at a cost per stream and you can be like, oh, I gotta get a million streams to make $1,000 or $400 or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And it's created ripples and in inequality in the market. But my argument would be at the very top of the market, Drake is making more money from streaming than anybody ever made from selling physical product. Right. And for all the people attack Spotify. So Universal Music is a publicly traded company. Mm -hmm. Warner Music's a publicly traded company. Spotify is a publicly traded company. You can go in and anybody can go read their annual report. Spotify's business challenge is they turn 68 or 69% of gross revenue back to rights holders. Now that may all not stream back to the artist and there may be some problems there, but basically 70 cents on the dollar goes back to rights holders. Mm -hmm. Go take Warner's earnings apart or Universal's earnings apart. They're not shedding 70% of top line revenue back to artists. Like I, I think from my era, if you had an amazing deal, if you had an amazing deal and you made $1.50 on a CD that was like wholesaled for six seventy-five, seven 7 bucks, that's not 70% of the money flowing back to an artist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's like before recoups. Yeah. You, you know, so it, it's interesting. I, it, and by the way, back to your point about disruption, I think this is re a really interesting thing about music. So rock music used to be the great disruptor. Mm -hmm. What I saw happen during the streaming revolution, and you talk about, you talk about singles, hip hop leaned into disruption, mm -hmm. right? Hip hop's like, it's all singles, it's all guesting. I'm gonna be, I'm gonna release something every week, every day. It's kind of like the digital version of mixtapes, right? I'm not gonna care about how much money I make on this, I'm just gonna think about it all holistically. Rock music was stuck in the 10 album cycle. I remember when there were bands like 
ACDC and the Red Chili Peppers are like, you can't break my record apart. That was sequenced perfectly. I want it consumed exactly the way it was sequenced. Yeah. Right? And they were still in the two-year, you know, record, release, tour cycle. And they were disrupted. Right. They were disrupted. This is a really cool point. Um, because hip-hop, like, the uh, that idea around, like, singles and, like, hip-hop and I guess, like, the... the uh, the culture that came out of and surrounds hip hop and then kind of morphed into other things, heavily single centered. And I do remember thinking like however many years ago, I was like, huh, that's weird. Like one of the, just like, why is it so focused on singles versus like albums? And that's a really good reflection. You know, even if we're just thinking about our own, our own bands, our own endeavors, it's like I put out a record in, in 2020 and people are like, Hey, when are you putting out your new, next record? I'm like, dude, I got like a family. I got a, business I got all this stuff it's like yeah like we're gonna put out an EP I've got it like most of the way done but like I don't know when I'm gonna write a LP but it's like why don't I just put out a single why don't I just put out a couple songs here and there but it's just not the way that I've done things and so like I'm not disrupted uh, disruptive enough so I can see how that that plays out not just in like rock music but also kind of like guitar driven music has kind of typically been been like that but I'll tell you something else that, like, it's interesting that hip-hop did take from our world, which was never the mainstream rock world. It feels to me disproportionately the idea of independent release and owning your own masters and owning your own publishing and not waiting for somebody to pay for your ride. Mm -hmm. Hip-hop also leaned into, which is the world we came from, right? Major labels wouldn't put out our record, so we put out our own, right? Major labels wouldn't distribute our record, so we distributed our own. That ethos feels embedded in hip hop much more than it ever felt embedded in corporate rock. Like you sort of feel about like, you know, these like artist entrepreneurs. They are disproportionately hip hop artists. They're not disproportionately rock artists. Yeah, yeah. Let's take a step back though. I want to talk about cable for one second. So major labels though, they didn't get disrupted. Or sorry, they got disrupted, but they, they didn't go away. Is cable gone? Is cable just gonna die and become completely obsolete? Or does cable kind of take its slaps and then come back? I don't think it's ever coming back like it mm. came back before. You know, I think there are places that cable remains. I mean, it's like a lot of things. I, I think until the last of the boomers and pre-boomers die, there will be some cable. Right. The debate has always been, you know, say the 28-year-olds that work for me or work for you, television is, you know, an iPad rested on their chest through a Wi-Fi signal. 100%. There's been some debate that like when you have kids, you will move back to a lean back experience. We're both parents. I, I can't speak to your daughter. My son has no interest in screen size is still irrelevant to yeah, him. Yeah. He is as happy holding my phone when he's in the chair at the barber shop as holding his iPad while he's having some lunch, as sitting in the living room with a 75-inch screen, literally screen size is irrelevant to him. So I'm not sure that ever happens. But things happen slower than you think, and then they happen faster, but the absolute death of something takes longer. I mean, AOL still exists. It's true. Yahoo still exists. Yeah. Not at the scale they ever did before. So cable's not going to be gone, gone for a long, long time until, like, potentially the next technical disruption. But, you know, cable's ability to mint money, that was a 40% margin business. Yeah. It doesn't exist anymore. What about corporate media? Where do you think that's going? What's your definition of corporate media? 
That's a good question. So we're going to say like the CNNs or the Fox Newses or any of the major networks that are whatever people listen to. I, I don't have a, a stake in the whatever, whatever they subscribe to of those channels. But I also mean like kind of legacy media, legacy papers, all of those things. Like seeing things like, let's say one of my favorite uh, news sources is Breaking Points. I love Breaking Points. And I think it's like really good reporting, really balanced, really smart. I, I, like, I like the format of the longer conversations. It's all on YouTube or on all the different streaming platforms. That seems to be, I don't want to sur say surplanting, but they have the ability to like outmaneuver a lot of the old models of delivering news. Can more like can legacy media like kind of hold its own? Can it maneuver? Can it find its can it find a way to survive and thrive again? On the macroeconomic entertainment side, for example, mm -hmm. I actually think we're seeing a return to legacy media, and you sort of say why. Mm -hmm. Disney has a couple of things that say Netflix doesn't. Disney disproportionately owns incredibly powerful IP, mm -hmm. right? And Disney has a multi-touch point flywheel, right? So somehow the bundle that Disney could not just include, you know, ESPN Plus for me, Disney Plus for my son. You know, they're going to clearly complete the rest of the Hulu transaction for our whole family. That flywheel can include, include the parks, <laughs> right? And you think about all the powerful IP that drives that. One of the dings on Netflix has been is for outspending every legacy media company on production in the last half decade or decade. How much AAA IP did they create? I mean, they created House of Cards, which is over, and Stranger Things. And how many other IP? Like, you, you, we could keep rattling on our fingers for how much powerful IP Disney owns. And, and the value of that IP cannot be discounted. What we've learned a little bit is maybe Silicon Valley knew how to distribute things better than Disney, but Disney still doesn't know how to make things better, right? There was a, there was a classic uh, analysis, I think the Ankler did it, which is, new, which is a new media source to your point, about how Netflix got less, fewer Rotten Tomato scores for every dollar spent than any other studio in the game. They were the least effective creator of quality. All that money got them very little quality. And no surprise, HBO had like the greatest return on Rotten Tomato scores. Yeah, totally. Where my bifurcated view of legacy media comes in is it seems in the last few years, at least on the news side, all the venture capital and all the investment has gone towards what I would call alternative news sources. However, those alternative news sources the bias seems to have been no bias. Like there's been a disproportionate push to create the unbiased, centrist, whatever you want to call it, right? That the world feels a bit fed up with, I have to choose between MSNBC and Fox. Right. And so if you think about Semaphore, Axios, the free press, right, where Barry Weiss and her wife like resigned from the New York Times, where they felt like they couldn't tell the stories they wanted to tell. And at least for the people writing checks for news today, they were disproportionately interested in writing checks towards what they believed were a centrist view of the world and less of a polarizing view of the world. It, it's totally fascinating to me because, you know, growing up, like the news is the news, right? And it's like, you know, whatever, like, it's like, even when I was a kid, like people say you can't trust the news now. It's like people were saying that 
40 years ago. I remember hearing that when I was like a little kid. Um, but as, as I've gotten older, I just feel that there's sensationalism has really, because it's like you're constantly bombarded with media in, in every way that you interact with the world. And I, man, like, you know, people are going to have all sorts of opinions. And I'm, I'm largely like, I'm, I'm largely okay with interacting with a lot of different kinds of opinions. You know, there are some things I don't want to interact with, but I'm, I'm largely okay with that. But what I, I really, I'm, what I'm really drawn to is being able to hear larger pieces of, of news or deeper conversations that can get more into nuances and give you more information. Or um, if I have the time to like dedicating myself to reading something that's a little bit like longer or a little bit deeper, or a little bit more researched. And this isn't a hack on legacy media necessarily or legacy news necessarily, because I, I think it's like if you've got a, let's say like a five minute segment on something, you're only going to be able to hit like the most salacious, <laughs> the most like biggest things, right? More long form conversations are the ones that I find the most interesting, the more, most educational, the ones where I can draw an opinion from, I can build my own opinion feel, instead of feeling like here's a prepackaged opinion that, that we're giving you and you can take it or turn it down. I don't have like a, a, a good or a bad opinion about it. All I can say is like where my attention is drawn now is more to longer format discussion-based conversations or longer format deeper dive um, writing. And there seems to be, that seems to be more present now than before. It does seem more centrist uh, with like different perspectives uh, put in there. And I tell you, I can't even imagine the last time I put on or picked, I picked up something that came from kind of like a traditional news source, uh, like kind of like the, the big names or turned on like kind of a cable news show. I can't even think the last time, not because I dislike it or I'm against it. It's just not where I'm, if I'm going to spend five minutes on something or 10 minutes on something, that's not where I'm spending my time. Not in a negative way. Are they going to, from your perspective, take what, take this trend and be able to like kind of reestablish themselves or are they going to go away eventually? I think it's very hard to answer. I think for whatever reason, our society is still powered by outrage. I think it's too much, man. I can't, I can't, I, 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 I can't barely even engage with social media. It's just people have to a total right to be upset and should be upset about lots of things. But it's just like, I feel like I turn on social media and it's like, ah, constantly. And I, I just, I can't, I, life is, there's so much challenging stuff going on for sure. And there is so much beautiful stuff going on. And, and I, I, I just want to have a balanced approach to life. Sorry to interrupt. When you said that, the, the rage. I, you're right. I mean, the world is still powered by outrage. Everybody's tribal. And nobody has any room for you to use the word nuance. Nobody has the word for nuance. And even more dangerously, nobody has the room for multiple things can be true at once. We live in a very complicated world where multiple things can be true at once. Every day, I'm a great CEO and I'm a terrible CEO. Every great day, I'm a great husband and a terrible husband. Every day, I'm a great father and a terrible father. But we live in a world where we don't want to sit in the nuance of anything. I'm going to push on something there, though. I feel like it's changing. Uh, I, I feel that there's like a, a fatigue that, that has set in a bit about this. Because it's like, it, you know, people, there's so much shit going on right now that people should be upset. And, and because we have so much access to information that 
previously wouldn't have been as accessible. It's like, yeah, people can be upset. And also there's just shit where you're like, fuck, we've had 100 years of this or 50 years of this or 20 years of this or five years of this of whatever thing that we're, we're talking about, longstanding problems that don't seem to be changing or improving or maybe getting worse. I understand and totally, I celebrate the idea of people taking the streets, pushing for change and all of that. Where I have uh, the concern here is, is like engaging with stuff that, like let's say the phone here, it's just like a portal of intensity that you're also kind of addicted to, right? And it's like there's a, life has got a lot of space for anger, outrage, all of these, those things, and then interacting with something that's like too much, it's almost like you're mainlining that constantly. It feels like to me that people increasingly are becoming a bit fatigued and they still care about the things they care about, whatever, from whatever political perspective they come from. But maybe uh, I'm starting to feel a little bit more of a sense of that idea of nuance where people are like, well, actually, nuance is a good thing. And, and nuance isn't, isn't maybe a good thing when you're making, it is not an easy thing when you're making a post. So maybe you don't make the post. Or maybe you make the post and you take the time to do it. Or maybe you just say, hey, maybe no one's going to actually read this nuanced post and maybe I just don't engage at all. Maybe I talk to my friend or my neighbor or I sit on it, I think about it more. It just feels more so, and I could be totally wrong, it almost feels like society's put on the brakes a little bit and been like, okay, we're all very angry all the time. <laughs> like, let's bring it back. And that's, that's what I would like to believe and that's what I'd like to hope to give it from like a business model perspective. I can understand why things that create outrage have become a model for media because it's like that's how you get the clicks and you're getting your clicks, that's how you get your advertising. I don't think anyone here is evil or has done the wrong thing or anything like that. It's like this whole thing is built to not serve discourse. And it's not, not because people are trying to create like tribalism or anger or everyone hate each other. It's just like from a business model perspective. But can that business model survive? And thrive like can it continue or can it realign it's hard to say i'm a little less optimistic than you are because i think that that business was created to fuel clicks uh -huh. and engagement which drive ad dollars or direct to consumer conversions or all that stuff but it also feeds self-affirmation to the other side of the equation right to the listener to the viewer and i still don't feel that most people want their views challenged regardless of where you sit in the political spectrum. I don't think people want to be questioned that this thing that they, this party that they believe in, whichever party that is, or this person that they believe in, or this decision that was made could be questioned. So I, I'm a little less optimistic. I, I still see a much more tribal world out there. Oh man, you grew up in, Bo you're an East Coast guy, I'm a West Coast guy, so we're playing out our hardcore, <laughs> our hardcore uh, archetypes here. We are. I totally get it. Like I. And you, because you are like way more in that world, like I'm just, I'm just in a guy with an opinion here. You've got like much more expertise in it. All media is so interesting to me because like I'm a kid of the eighties. I grew up watching TV and like I grew up for a large part just kind of like believing what I saw on TV and reading what I saw on the news. Now, you know, I'm grown up, have to make my own opinions on things. I, I, I will say I genuinely, genuinely, genuinely believe that I, that while people can have challenges with how they discuss things and you know right and wrong can be debatable but there's something in there that i think from a societal point of view we can agree just generally what's right or wrong 
I, I feel like we're going to get there. Like the, this, the stuff about how, how, the, how media works with us or works against us, I don't think any of that stuff's intentional. And I, I do feel it's like, uh, I'll give you an example. I think of it like email. Email is still like a relatively new technology for us. And I know that sounds strange because like we all email all the time. But email has been with us for a blink of an eye historically. And people still write fucking stupid emails. It doesn't mean they're bad people. They just write stupid, stupid emails. Where are we going to be uh, with email in five years, 10 years, 20 years? Our reaction and use of that technology is still catching up to how quickly it's been adopted and how, what a cornerstone it's going to become. But at some point, like, there's going to be, a, 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 just to go even deeper on it, like, have you ever been trained on how to write email? Like, did you ever go to a class? Was it part of, it wouldn't have been part of college for you, but like, did anyone ever teach you how to write an email? Yes, and it, it's funny, because I think even that's generational, right? And, and we could have a whole deep dive into what I think the pre-COVID workplace and the post-COVID workplace look like and dealing with young professionals who have never actually worked in the pre-COVID workplace. Even email has become generational. Like, apparently, I'm Generation X, we, I actually believe we're the first natively digital generation, meaning I didn't have email when I was growing up. I didn't have email in high school, right? I never have had a professional position without a computer and an email address and a mobile phone. Right. To a certain degree, that's digitally native. Yeah. Gen Y and Gen Z eye roll at the formality of Gen X email. Right, right. It's too formal. It's too long. Why is there a salutation? Why is there a sign off? You know, so even that stuff is like generational. There's not like a single view of that. So in fact, I believe I was to some degree trained how to write an email, right? I mean, I mean, it's funny. I, I was going, but did you go to a class on it, ever? No, I never went to a class on how to read. But I was for sure schooled on how to write an email. Totally. Let, just, and I don't think anyone's schooled on how to write an email today. Okay, I, this is the reason because I'm going to tie it back to media. Like, email is totally interesting to me because, like, email. Like, think think how many emails you send in a day or how many you get. It's like a ton. It's like a cornerstone of how, of how we deal with things, right? Uh, how we communicate with people. But most people, when they go in the workplace, there's not like, a, okay, as a company, we're going to provide you a training for how to write an email. And when you're in high school, there's not like, there might be now, I'm not, you know, I don't know, I, I don't have the going ons in high school, but, or in college, there's not like, a, this is how you write an email. There's how you write, but how you write an email. How do you write in a way that's like, works with your audience, that thinks what you want to do. I see email as being one of the biggest um, strike points for conflict in the workplace. And in fact, like I deal with people all the time where it's like there's challenges in the workplace and you can almost always draw it back to emails, emails, emails. At some point, society gets it with email, just like it's gotten it with most things. It doesn't mean there's still not going to be incidents of people acting like jackasses or sending a bad email or this or that. But you kind of figure it out over time. When I think of like media and news and all that kind of stuff, and you think of like real like news news, like network news and newspapers and all these things, like these are things, and then we bring in all of like the streaming and stuff like that. I just feel like we're all still kind of figuring it out and like people consuming news and really being like invested in news and how it forms opinions and all that. Like we're all still figuring it out. I don't feel, I, what I would like to believe is that I think that 
the more that we're in this stuff and the more that we're like we're dealing with these different mediums of how we communicate we kind of get it more and we get it more in a way where it's like it could still operate as a business it can still make money but we don't necessarily have to write headlines for clickbait to like draw people in to fuel rage or we don't have to only go to news sources where it's like you're i'm just going to agree with you and it's like just like when we write email at work it's like we're going to get it over time and I am a believer that people get it over time, but all of this technology is still a blink of the eye in terms of the human experience. And I just think we'll get it over time. That's my belief, that's what I hope. I think you're right, I mean, it's interesting when you talk about like going to school to do this. I mean, the interesting thing is if you do business, like you and I do business, I don't think they teach you how to do that anywhere. And I was having this conversation somewhere where like, okay, why do the best companies in the world hire two-year associates from Bain to your associates from McKinsey because nobody comes out of school knowing how to do business. Mm -hmm. And what you know, if you get somebody that spent two years at Bain or two years at McKinsey, somebody taught them the most basics, how to run a meeting, how to do follow-up, how to write an email. Right. And I think one of the post-pandemic struggles we're having, I'm, I'm trying to lead a post-pandemic company in essence, is one of my challenges every day is trying to find time to mentor people who literally don't know how to do business. And I'm not saying that to be hypercritical of my team, yeah. but they didn't spend two years at Bain and they spent their two years since university not interacting in an office and not being challenged and literally not knowing how to run a meeting or follow up on a meeting. Like what I try to explain, like it's, it's so interesting. I try to explain to people who have only worked post pandemic about what I used to call my office spider sense. Where I could walk into the building in the morning, and as I go through my day in my peripheral vision, there's a meeting of eight people in that glass room. I probably should have been in that meeting. I'm not in that meeting. Should that be concerning to me about my career? I'm gonna buttonhole somebody in that meeting. I'm gonna find them in the parking lot. I'm gonna find them by the coffee machine. I'm gonna find them in the restroom. I'm gonna do a swing by of their office and find out what happened in that meeting. Why wasn't I there? What are the next steps? Where's the next meeting I can hijack? Like there's a spider sense to it. Mm -hmm you don't know what Zoom you weren't invited to, right? Yeah. You don't know what side conversation took place because you can't look out your window and like, you can't see whose car is there at eight in the morning. You can't see your, whose car is there at eight at night. Those skills have to be retaught. Yeah, well, the, so totally. The, the post-pandemic business world and how we run everything is like, I think a super cool challenge for leadership to unlock. Like for me, some of the most fun, fun I've had some of those fun conversations is like, you know, like a, a term I think we've all gotten a little sick of. It's like the new normal. It's like, yeah, this is the new normal. We are going to have flex work. We are going to have remote, remote work. There's going to be like the Zoom things, like people are going to be left out intentionally or unintentionally. The way the game is done now is going to be way, way, way different. And I just think that's like part of the like, hey, let's figure it, let's figure it out. Like human beings are complex. They're like, we are wonderful and cool and amazing. We're capable of doing the coolest things. And we're like messy and terrible and all of that other stuff. Greedy and selfish. Yeah, like all of it. And I just feel like it's like everything that we get, every new challenge that we get, like the pandemic and the resulting things that come from it from just a work perspective, it's like, oh, this is cool. Like, man, there's a whole, all these new things that, to figure out that I think is the opportunity to make things cooler, more inclusive, more direct, faster, smoother. I just want people to be happy, have good work experiences. I want like barriers to be taken away as much as, as possible. 
And I think the changes that have come of, from the pandemic can create some of that. So like uh, in terms of access for different kinds of people who have different needs, uh, who maybe coming to a, a traditional workplace was challenging, uh, neuro people who are neurodivergent, people who have all sorts of different experiences. It's like what we can do now is fucking cool. Like talk about getting the best and the brightest. If you're going from this teeny little pool who can kind of fit traditional um, business structure, that's not the best of the brightest. It's the best and the brightest from a small little segment of society. Now we've got a way bigger segment we can draw from. It's just about how do we do it in a way that the, the good stuff from, from how business used to be done can be brought in and kind of capitalized on while we're adapting to this newer, this newer way. I agree, I'm gonna bring it full circle. Be hip hop, don't be rock and roll. Good, I love it. Let's, let's go into you more specifically because we covered a lot of, a lot of cool stuff there. Um, so from the first time we talked to now, like career has changed, but life has changed a lot, a lot too. So just what's the general update on, on you as a person? The general update could take more time than you could ever <laughs> want to talk to me. I mean, I sort of feel like we say this all the time. I sort of feel like three years feels like 10 years. Yeah. I don't think there's been a time in our lifetime where three years has felt like 10 years any more than now. Oh, I know, man. When you and I sat down last time, I couldn't announce it, but I had just accepted a global CMO position for a venture-backed company that's competing with the UFC around the entire globe called One Championship. And my family and I were gonna move to Singapore. In the fall of 2019, I began commuting to Singapore on a regular basis. I began really leaning back into my global remit. When you and I sat down, I was just wrapping up a job in the music business, which is a place that you and I are really passionate about. The limitation for me is it felt local, not global. We were streaming global things, but it wasn't necessarily a global company. One of the things I loved about being at Activision was the global nature of the business and doing things like bringing Call of Duty to China. And I was really intent on getting back onto a global stage. And I got the most global role of my life where not only was it a global business, but it was uh, the great bulk of the business was non-US right and i was going to live in another part of the world and so i found myself you know the back end of 2019 commuting back and forth between the united states and singapore and trying to navigate like when to move a family that included a small child and a wife and like what life was going to look like halfway along the, around the world and this little island nation and ramping up on a new job and that would have been a challenge enough in itself and then two big things happened. A personal one, I lost my dad. And then the global one of the pandemic, and they sort of happened in that order. And then trying to find some sort of balance or normalcy after that, you know, which was potentially one of the biggest challenges of my life. So when we had first met and done our podcast, like one of the kind of fun parts was talking about like growing up as a punk and you had these kind of like liberty, liberal hippie parents and like how they were reacting to you, this punk kid. And you talked a lot about, about your relationship with your parents and kind of like finding yourself through that. And then it was just really mere weeks later that your, your dad passed away. And I remember you, you give me a text and we were, we were chatting about it a little bit. And I was like, fuck, man, like what a intense thing to experience. Then almost instantly followed by this, by this pandemic. So I know, of course, you've lost people in your life as, as all of us have. But losing a parent is like a, a different, a whole different thing. What's different 
in your life and in your world and in you as a result of, of having lost your dad? To be honest, to answer that question, I'm not even sure I've completely processed it or I'll ever completely process it. You know, like I've always been a career first person. And one of my greatest strengths and one of my greatest weaknesses has been the ability to turn it all off, right? To be like the warrior, you know, like that sense of like, you know, samurai, mercenary, you know, it's, it's tattooed on my body. It's been a life ethos that I've lived at. It's made me very successful at what I've done. It's probably made me less successful as a son, less successful as a husband, you know, et cetera. So to be honest, as my dad first got ill, I was probably too good at blocking it out, right? And I could avoid dealing with it and I could avoid leaning into it by just being like, oh, I have to be in Singapore, oh, I have to be in China, oh, I have to be in Japan. Like, I'm sending best wishes, but I'm in Japan. I was in Singapore in December of 19. I can't remember if I got a text or a phone call, but you know, your father only has maybe a couple weeks left. And I remember I had booked a ticket from Singapore to Los Angeles. Singapore is hot all the time, you know, 95 degrees, 95% humidity. You know, I think I only had jeans and t-shirts in Singapore and Boston's, you know, the snow. And so I had a second suitcase in my car at LAX. And I was gonna fly to LA and I was gonna get that second suitcase and fly to Boston. And the night before I left, I had dinner at this teeny little sushi bar at the St. Regis Hotel in Singapore with my boss, who I had a very complex relationship with over the three years. In some ways, it was a really strong relationship, and in some ways, it was a very troubled relationship. There were some places we never really got synchronicity on. This is very tough between a CEO and a CMO. And to his credit, over that dinner, and for his privacy, I won't give you the details, but he shared his experience in losing his father. Very meaningful, three-hour dinner. And I took that learning and took that knowledge to my flight the next day. The other thing that I did was, as strong as I can be and as I want to be, and I think I am, I can get into conflict avoidance. And I just knew in the back of my head, I had this feeling, if I flew to LA and got off a plane, I was going to come up with every excuse possible not to get on the next plane to Boston. It was just never going to happen. And so I go from Singapore to Hong Kong. I'm sitting in the Hong Kong airport. And I was like, I'm not going to go. I'm not going to go to Boston if I go to L.A. If I don't change my plane right now from Hong Kong to Boston, I'm just not going to go. And I found a flight while I'm sitting in the Hong Kong airport from Hong Kong to Boston, so I have no out. That was like what I needed to do for myself so I couldn't back out of it. Couldn't just get off and go home and hug my son and kiss my wife. I remember buying a winter coat you know, because there's t-shirts, I buy a winter coat in the Hong Kong airport. God knows why they sell winter coats. I buy a scarf in the Hong Kong airport. I buy a couple sweaters in the Hong Kong airport. And I fly to Boston. I have no idea what I'm going to say. I have no idea what to do. You know, I'm trying to think about how to handle the situation. I just remember walking into this hospital room. And he just looks at me and he goes, what am I going to do? You know, he's scared. And I just decide that what I'm going to do is I'm going to spend time (sighs) 
sharing with him all the ways that he parented me that I've tried to pass on as a parent. My dad's the Greek side of my family. Greeks are very um, physical in their love. My dad always kissed me, like kissed on the lips. It's embarrassing when you're a kid in Boston, like, ah, oh, my dad kisses me on the lips. And I kiss my son a lot. And my son is this thing with me. My son, Cameron, is always like, no wet kisses, daddy. No wet kisses, just dry kisses, daddy. <laughs> and I remember my dad has wet kisses. And so I sort of tell him that story and that I kiss my son like he used to kiss me. And that's just what I try to share for the next few days, you know, like those things that went from him to me to Cameron. And that's how I choose to spend the time with him. And then also I, I, I'm not good if I'm not doing something, right? And my dad's not really eating, he's losing weight. And my dad loves ice cream, always loved ice cream. And I just decide that like, what I'm gonna do is I'm just gonna find whatever the best, bougie, great ice cream is. And that's, if that's all he wants to eat, that's gonna eat. And I, spend, and I find it and every day I bring, you know, some crazy, you know, ridiculous $10 quart ice cream or whatever, my dad, and I just sit there and talk about, you know, what his parenting meant and what I've passed on and feed him ice cream. And it's probably the most he ate that whole time in the hospital. And then after the fifth night, he must have had some pain in the night, we're not really clear. He gets morphine and he's not really there anymore. And because he's not really there anymore, then I sort of feel like I have a family, I don't need to be there anymore. And I fly back to Los Angeles and I'm in Ohio with my family. And we wake up on like the morning of the 27th to a uh, voicemail from my stepmom, sort of saying that they had fallen asleep holding hands together. And she woke up at two and he was gone. And you know, it's, it's, see, I'm, you know, it's sad, it's tragic. And you know, he was only 82 or 83. And it's just crazy that a couple of months later with how the world changes, all of a sudden, it seems to be like he left at the perfect moment. Three months later, he wouldn't have been holding his wife of 35 years' hand. He would have been alone, looking at people in like hazmat suits. You can imagine how scary that would have been. Like, how, what a way to go out. And it's just that craziness of what seems sort of like the lowest point you can have it's weirdly like its own kind of blessing. Yeah. Um, thanks for sharing that. And for anyone wondering like, you know, why, why it took us down this, it's like, you know, you and I have developed a relationship over the years. And largely, I was, you know, a lot of our relationship is through text yeah. and phone. the closeness to your father passing to our initial conversation and then kind of communicating yeah. with you after that. And then also like, cause we'll talk about this next chapter. It's like kind of like the isolation you were facing. Yeah. So shortly after that, 
I kind of felt it was important just so that you could talk about it because you are, you know, clearly like really like you really know what you're talking about when you talk about the business world. You're super successful. You've done cool stuff, both like from like punk scene, but also like your own work. And so much of your story is that kind of like button down, like push it down, like keep going forward. This past, for the short amount of time that I've known you, this this period seems like the most vulnerable, one of the most vulnerable periods of your life. For sure. I mean, you know, what you talk about is, I realize it's like your greatest strength is always your greatest weakness, right? You know, they come from the same place. Hell, you know, we live in a funny world where like, I'm not sure we know that many healthy, super successful people. Like what it takes to be super successful, I'm not sure is like what truly balanced, healthy people want to do. I, I can also say that about musicians. Yeah. Like some of the most creative, amazing musicians that, I, that I've ever met are people who have very serious demons and very serious, not everyone. You, know, you might have like a Walter Schweifels who's just like a wonderful, like well-balanced person. Like, you know, like he's, he's doing well, but most, most musicians that I know are super, not all, but many, um, same with business people. I mean, a large part of why my job exists and my company exists is because I, I help people with all of that. Um, anything else you want to say about, about your dad and his passing before we go into the next space? As we were talking about earlier, like, Everybody brings their biases to how they view the world. And then I also think like humans are in this constant sort of like against. And not necessarily against each other, but like against whatever their wound was, right? So like both of my grandfathers were very successful immigrants. And I think that my dad sort of felt like he didn't want that same distance where work was first. And so my dad tried to elevate parenting and relationships over work more so than he, his dad did. And there were times in my life as I leaned into work that I would judge it, dismiss it, wish that like he had been a more successful person so my path could have been easier. Like I do all this work with my son, so like he's got this incredible network whenever he wants it. And it's like, why didn't my dad do that for me, you know? And what I realized, and it's ironic given the musical path that I took that I didn't recognize it in my dad, is that he had really leaned into his creativity and his community in a way that I deeply underestimated. And sort of saw in the process, especially as I was like in the hospital and I'm watching like, you know, the people who came in and talked to him and the impact he had on their lives and, his, and their community. And there's a whole bunch of guilt in it for me about how I underestimated his impact on the world and his place in the world because it didn't fit the model of what I was chasing at that time. Yeah. I, I mean, I relate a lot. You know, my dad is still with us, but as we've talked about, you know, my dad lives uh, with dementia and, and he, he lives separate from us now in, in a care home. And uh, my dad was the um, homemaker in our family. My mom was a breadwinner and is like, you know, I always, I always kind of laugh about like, you know, it's like seven seconds, like not, not just girls fun. It's like, it's almost bizarre to me that someone would have to write that because I grew up with them. My, my mom was the leader and she was like the, the, the person who made things happen. Um, so I always grew up with strong, uh, strong female figure in my life. And there were times where like, I would have 
like, but also at the same time, like, our dad was like the hero of the house, right? Like, you know, like we all loved our dad and like, you know, he's a kind of closed off emotionally guy, but like also like totally clearly loved us. But I, I definitely grew up kind of wishing my dad, you know, had a high powered job or, or this or that. And, kind of wishing my dad was like the other dad because my dad had this like little pointy little goatee and like a devil's goatee and it was like you know had a thick accent and I just wanted to be like every other kid you know and uh especially when I kind of wanted started going down my path of like music and all this stuff and my dad couldn't relate to it he wanted me to go to school and he was always very critical of me not going to school uh when I I did eventually go but uh, we had a lot of conflict and then as I got older, I was like, oh shit, like my dad was like way more punk than I was, you know? <laughs> like my dad like didn't have a formal education, became an engineer just by figuring it out, lived all over the world, like on his own before the internet or any of that, that stuff. He had a uh, myth, uh, culturally mixed marriage, which is you know, very frowned upon in their generation. Did everything he could to, to make sure his kids had the best life. And, you know, we were talking about that kind of like regret of like, fuck, you know, I didn't realize how cool my dad was until it was like far, far too late yeah. to be in that space. And I just want to really acknowledge that I know how hard that was for you to talk about. And like, I hope anyone listening, I hope you get whatever you get out of it is, is something that's like positive about like the how finite the importance of recognizing how finite time is and or, or life is and uh, really respecting and acknowledging what you have while you can and and like perspective right like i had such a skewed perspective of the whole thing oh yeah, yeah. me too um but let's talk about what happened next so pandemic hits and you've got a job in singapore so what happened pandemic hits I lost my dad, holidays are over, I have to get back in the plane and go to Singapore, right? And the plan had been at that point, you know, as often happens in these relocations or international postings, you know, I'm gonna go back and forth as needed, family's gonna relocate at the start of the next school year. You know, there's always been a fair amount of work in my life, so if I'm doing like, so I'll say I'm doing two weeks, two weeks, right? not that different from the pattern my wife and I had built over the years. It's harder being a parent, but you know, doing okay. It's March. I'm working away in my office in Singapore. You know, I'm hearing things that are happening in the States. You know, there's international news, but I'm just buried in trying to get up to speed on this new job, right? And my boss, the CEO, comes in the office and says, bro, you gotta take the next plane home. And I was kind of like, what do you mean? It's like they're shutting down California. I hadn't even really thought all that thing through. You know, this is when, like, the worst case things were like, oh, you know, like, it'll blow over in a few weeks, right? Like, the things that happened before. And I book a flight back to Los Angeles. I want to say it's, like, March 17th. Don't quote me. Whatever the last day that L.A. is open, right? And it's when, you know, all, like, JFK looks like that chaos scene of like a war of all these people flying in and I land in LA like the last plane that lands right before the city goes dark it's like a science fiction movie it's so crazy that I'm not even sure I can get an uber 
So I call like some old school car service that I haven't called in like a decade, that I have an account where somebody can show up with like your name on a sign just so I can like get home, you know? And I think a week, two weeks, I'll be back to Singapore, whatever. And then it turns into what it turns into. And a couple of dynamics take place. A, we're all about like our, we've been talking about our greatest strengths or our greatest weakness. I am a warrior. I turn into a warrior in these situations. Like I, if we need, remember when you can't find toilet paper? Can't find toilet paper, I'll find toilet paper. You can't find this, I'll find that. And I turn on warrior survival mode. And I think I'm doing the family of service in this, not realizing how closed off I am, right? That everybody needs different things. And I'm in like war mode, right? You know, I'm working Singapore hours, so I'm like on Zooms from like five in the afternoon until two in the morning and then sleeping and getting up and then getting whatever he needs to get. And like, I'm gonna go out in the world and like get these things and find these things. And that's, you know, creating distance at home because I'm, I think everybody gives the kind of love they think they, they wanna get. Everybody gives the, came, the kind of mentoring they wanna get, right? Without necessarily thinking through that may not be the kind of love the other person wants. That may not be the kind of mentoring the other person wants. And I'm so in survival mode that I'm giving my family what I think they want and what I think they need. But it turns out that's not actually what they want or need, right? And then also in all of our relationships, we have cadences, right? Like the time that we've been married and the time that I've been a parent, it's been, you know, three weeks home you know, one week away, three weeks home, 10 days away, two weeks home, two days away, whatever. We've got a cadence, we're comfortable with it. Now we have to sit in this discomfort of first, too much time together. Like we haven't been together 24 seven, no break, you know, forever. Like, and that's got its own stresses and challenges and with it just the general pressure of nobody really knows what's going on. And then as things lift and I have to go away, now I can't go to Singapore for two weeks because I have to go sit in a, you know, quarantine for two weeks. So to get the ROI out of the trip, I got to go for two months or three months. And so then everything's challenged by too much time together and too much time apart, right? So all the compromises and agreements that get made in any kind of relationship in life and in work and all this stuff are all blown up when we're trying to create new ones. And it was a very, very, very difficult situation for work, for my marriage, for my parenting, for all that stuff. And then layered on top of that is, you know, I dropped out of high school because I couldn't stay in like one building, you know, for like nine hours. And now I got to stay in one building for like 24 hours. And I remember at some point, like, you know, and I'm finding illegal gyms to work out at, like, like my meds is working out, right? Like that's what keeps my head on. And so I'm seeking medication, right? So I'm finding like, you know, there's a gym over here where they don't want to lose their life savings. So you can go in the side door and there's a gym over there where like they don't care about the rules. And, you know, my wife is sure that I'm going to come home with COVID, you know, every day. And I have to have the conversation that, like, these are my meds. Like, 
I don't think I can survive in this house. Like, you got, we got to work out that this is okay. Or like, I don't think I'm going to make it. Yeah. You know, and so everything has to get redefined, right? I mean, you think about, I can't think about a time in our life where everything had to get redefined at once like that. All at once, everything. And I am such a horrible creature of habit and such a warrior that that makes me particularly bad at it. Yeah, yeah. So, how'd you work it out? <sighs> trying to change to the degree that any person can change. Trying to find empathy in each other's situations and unmet need. And a fuck ton of therapy, like individually and, you know, couples therapy. Coming out on the other end of these challenges, father passes away challenges uh, in the in the family pandemic and then a work relationship that you got a lot out of out of that job but you had a challenging relationship with your boss it was a very difficult time and watching you deal with that from a distance and the, the times where we would talk hearing that strain in your voice while also just like bullshitting and catching up or whatever it there was a moment where I was like what's gonna happen with this guy but you get through, and now you're on the other end. What's different about you? I think that's for those around me to sort of figure out if I'm different. Call your wife right now. <laughs> if I'm, I, I think it's up to those around me to figure out what's different or it's different enough. You know, it was interesting because I think, you know, diamonds are made under pressure, mm -hmm. right? You know, tough situations force you to grow or fold. I'm a big believer, you know, in this cause, problems during like lockdowns but like quitting isn't an option so you have to like figure out how to grow and figure out how to rethink you know I learned a ton in my time there and it was also very difficult and part of the difficulty came from you know the dynamics of that culture and I also realized that part of the difficulty came from me being like what I thought were like tactical marketing decisions that were being questioned or challenged like, hey, I really know how to do this. How do you micromanage my business? Part of that was actually I would have made different strategic decisions about the business, not the marketing. And I am trying to relitigate that in the marketing. And I had to realize that that's on me. Yeah. Right, that to some degree, I was not like, you know, you're, you're, you're a soldier. And, you know, I, what, what did Jeff Bezos talk about? You know, it's the loud dinner table conversation, but then once an agreement is made, you gotta lean into it 120%. And the part that was on me is I was trying to relitigate some of those things as the CMO. Yeah. And that's not right, and I have to own that, and I had to learn that. The inspiration in that is it made me start to think, maybe it's time to make the big decisions. And so as part of my transition plan, I decided to go to Wharton and complete their advanced management training program to try to fill in some operational gaps as somebody who came up through marketing so I could take a shot. And it was interesting because it happened at a time that my son was starting kindergarten. And so I, I could also be a role model of, look, daddy's going to school too. At the same time, he's transitioning from preschool to kindergarten. 
And I'm like, look, hey, learning is a lifetime path and it's something that we lean into as a family and it's something that's valuable as a family. And to my family's credit, that was also disruptive because I was in a hybrid program where I'm commuting to Philadelphia now. I'm doing like a module online and then I'm going to the Wharton campus in Philadelphia and doing a module in person. And you know, we worked out a way that that could work for the family. Pandemic wraps. Well, wraps is a, a TED subject. Let's just say things with the pandemic start to shift. Things start to open up a little bit and you make a return to Slapshot. <laughs> Full circle music. I mean, it's interesting. Obviously music has always been a shared passion for both of us. We, we kind of can't stay away from it despite what we do for business. Mm -hmm. I got the opportunity to return to music in arguably the easiest gig I've ever had in my life. And what I mean by that is, we talked about this the last time I was on the podcast, like when DYS reformed and all those tours happened, I was really the QB. I was literally the business. Mm -hmm. A lot of it fell on me. Booking tours fell on me, making records fell on me. I mean, those guys are incredible musicians, much better than I could ever be. But like the business of the music business fell on me. Mm -hmm. Last time we did that was 2017. We were going to tour in 2020, and obviously that was canceled by COVID. I still have the ephemera around, the tour posters, whatever. The winter of 2021 rolls around, and Slapshot had some anniversary shows scheduled they also had to put off due to the pandemic. And I get a text from Choke, and the singer, and he says, hey, I'm really thinking about like a surprise ending to our anniversary shows in Boston where we came up where the original band comes out and plays the last song. Mm -hmm. And I'm intrigued, I'm super interested. I kind of negotiate with him and I kind of say, one song, like. That's a long way to go for one song, man. But I don't frame it that way and I would go all that way for one song, but I was like, how about like three songs or four songs? Like, let's try to make like a thing out of it, you know? Like, let's try to make it a little bit more interesting than one song. I'll do one and I convince them to do four. Mm -hmm. And so I, you know, relearn and rehearse the songs in Los Angeles. You know, I've got the gear from, you know, DYS. I ship some stuff to Boston. We go and we do two rehearsals, because it's only four songs. And, and three nights, three nights at the Middle East and the close every night as I come out with guys that like I haven't played with in a super long time we know each other really well and it's the perfect gig in terms of like the crowd has already been amped up for like 50 minutes like they're already like on fire and then you know choke gets to do is like we got a special surprise for you tonight right and people go crazier and crazier and it's very little like learning a full set is stressful learning four songs is not that stressful and it was a great celebration over something that I sort of like never got to celebrate the end of. Totally, man. When that was happening, I kind of was thinking like, I was a little bit of a capstone to this guy having a pretty difficult period. I'm not saying like that was, you know, the movie ending, you put down the bass and everything was great. Uh, but from a distance, it looked like, hey, man, it's like kind of a good way to just give yourself a nice little gift and go have some fun. And it was, again, my family, like, my wife's like, go do it. Like, go have fun with your friends, you know? Like, it was no, like, 
really? It's November and you want to fly to Boston and like play some stupid punk rock shows, you know? But yeah, I mean, it, it felt like it would be overestimating to call it closure and everything that went before, but it was certainly closure in my time in that band. Yeah. You know, in a way that was really rewarding without the same kind of pressure and lift that I put on myself for DYS. Because it's interesting, you know, we started this conversation talking about like the, the unrelenting pressure of being a CEO. Mm -hmm. Dave Smalley and I are the co-CEOs of DYS. Choke is the CEO of Slapshot. Like, there was something amazing about like showing up and like not being the CEO. <laughs> totally bad. I showed up with a couple of bases. I made sure I knew my parts. <laughs> I gave it my best, but it was like somebody else's business, okay, somebody else's man. show. Totally, totally. Uh, do you think you'll ever do it again, or is that it? I would do it again if I'm asked. I mean, I think Choke got what he wanted out of that moment, and you know, I, I believe they're in Europe now doing something else. You yeah, know? they're off doing they're off doing their slap shot. All right, so what's next for DYS? So it's an interesting question, right? I've learned to approach every show at this point like it could be the last show, right? Like 2017 could have been the last show, 2020 could have been the last show that was canceled. We've got, you know, sort of a important anniversary of our first record coming up. And I'd like to do something around that. I'm not necessarily ready to talk about what that is or exactly when it's going to happen or if it's going to happen, but my hope is that there can be a similar celebration around brotherhood very cool um all right so as we're closing off you know i uh traditionally like to ask what we call the crucial three uh -oh. three very difficult questions that are going to get harder as we go along uh -oh. are you ready sure okay so um now that you, have, we'll go back to kind of the beginning of the conversation, the big seat. When I say the big seat, you could be leading 20,000 people or you could be leading four people, like whatever it is, the CEO role. Any advice that you would give to someone stepping into that space for the first time that you have now learned as a result of being in it for this period of time? Relentless discipline about use of time and prioritization. Mm. Tell me more. What I mean by that is every day there's things where I'm looking up and outward that only I can do and that there is management and corrective and oversight things that I have to do. And you can spend your whole day getting pulled down, problem solving, advice, it's important. To your point, like everything that goes not the way it's supposed to is on you. So you, you can't live in a corner office and you can't only look up. But you can spend days where you never looked up. And you're the one steering the ship. And you can go through the whole day and go like, I didn't point to the horizon. I didn't tell everybody to look at the map. I didn't turn the steering wheel. I was just helping them trim the jib. And that's not necessarily additive or helps anything accelerate. You're also like a hyper-competitive, hard-working person. You've referred to yourself as being like a warrior many times in here. You're, people often say to me, it's like, I don't know how you, I don't know how you do it because I'm like off constantly traveling for work. I mean, Monica and I are traveling a, a ton for work. We also travel for pleasure. But we have, uh, between us, we have like three kids. We have a blended family. I also like playing bands. I do this, I do that. I just, I have a very 
full-paced life. And I'm a very busy person. I love being busy. I've always liked being busy. And so when people say to me, I don't know how you do it, I say to you, I don't know how you do it because you're like that, but like we're very similar, but you're like that like times 100. No, it's not. It's, dude, it's not times 100. It, but it's a lot. I you, have one kid. I don't have three kids. You do a, you just let me give you a compliment. You do a lot. And one of the things that I really admire about you, amongst many things I admire about you, one of the things I admire about you is that you um, are such, uh, you take such pride in being a parent, like such pride. So any advice that you would give to the people who are listening who actually are like hyper-motivated, constantly on the move, what advice would you give around being a, a parent that is still in the mix, that's still there, but is also managing a, a ton of other things in life? That's a hard one because I am pretty sure I don't have that balance right. You know, like I do a lot of justification about doing things that don't involve my son because they're for the benefit of my son, but he doesn't see those things. And so if he doesn't see those things, are they of value? I mean, some degree they are, you know, like they open doors for him, they make things possible, but he doesn't see them. I'm very poor, you know, people say like undivided attention. I'm poor at undivided attention. I spend way too much time looking at my phone when I'm with him that I shouldn't. I spend way too, time, way too much time going, I just have to make this one call. Could be way better at that stuff. What I think I'm good at is just sort of like empathy. I have a lot of empathy for like where he sits in life and where his situations are. I'm hard to ruffle with him. And I just try to like do as much stuff with him as I can when I can do it. But I would not say this is part of my life that I have the balance right yet. Dude, you, you just gave so much great advice, but you did it from more from like a self-critique point of view. <laughs> so I think that's useful. All right, the third question is usually, especially if I'm dealing with someone from punk and hardcore about like favorite records or this or that, but I'm not gonna do that this time. Um, <laughs> I'm gonna give you maybe a harder question. Well, I, I believe it's harder. It might be easy for you. Um, so of the people that I know in punk and hardcore, you are significantly different than most of them. Um, you are very, you kind of, not kind of, you wear quite as like a badge in your sleeve, just like how different you are. Like it's it, like of the punks, you're quite different than, than the punks. And I, even if I look at your generation of, of people, I don't want to say what they're like, but like you really stand out as being quite different. Like you're the guy who kind of like, boom, went off into corporate America. You kind of disappeared from that world. You went off and did your thing. You were like a marauder out in the world doing business. You came back. You were just a different cat, but you've also really, sometimes just a little, like a little toe in and sometimes a foot for, firmly planted. You've, you've also kind of stayed in the punk orbit or kind of connected to it you are unabashedly yourself in what I think is like a really cool way to be, just unabashedly yourself while also remaining a part of the culture. Is that an easy balance for you to maintain? I would first answer that question by saying I am not unabashedly myself. I'm trying to be unabashedly myself and I'm not fully unabashedly myself yet. And what that means is I still filter in the business world mm -hmm. 
and I still filter in the music world. And I think when I'm fully formed, I will be unabashedly myself. Okay, good. And the difficulty in that is, and in bridging these worlds, is I do struggle with sort of like otherism, right? You know, like sometimes in the business world, like, you know, I'm outside the door of a conference and I'm gonna walk in and there's gonna be 300 people I don't know. And I'm like, they know, they know I'm different, right? Or like I walk into a punk show and I was like, oh, they, they don't think I'm part of this anymore. You know, I even thought about like when we were touring, you know, like, I just even that thing is different. Like, I, you know, I remember touring the last time and I've got like, you know, too many electronic devices and everyone else is sleeping and I can't sleep. And so the hard part about keeping your toe in all this is like, there's a little, there's a voice in your head all the time until you're a fully formed person that like, I'm, I don't belong here. I'm not part of this. They can tell. And I still struggle with that too. And I think that's hard when you keep your feet in multiple worlds. Yeah, um, yeah and good, thank you for, for pushing on that. Uh, it's something that I struggle with a lot because I walk in, a, in, in some different, different worlds. And sometimes I'll be somewhere, I'll be like, I do not belong here anymore. This is just not like, like from whence I came is not where I am now. And I'm just a different, I'm just a different cat than all of these people. And the other times I'm like, maybe I'm the only person here who thinks this. Like, maybe, maybe I do belong here and I'm the one who's being, who's creating this pressure about it. And I just think it's like really important to hear someone, people from different points of their lives to be like, hey man, I still struggle with being who I am and I do want to eventually become fully formed and I can feel insecure and I'm afraid, but it's not gonna keep me from walking into that conference with 300 people, nor is it gonna keep me from walking into a punk show. I, I think kind of the beauty of what you just said there is it's like, it's okay to still feel like a total fucking alien and just be like, I am a weirdo here amongst weirdos, but it's not gonna keep you from doing the thing. Well, that's the thing. I mean, you know, like really the advice that I would give anybody, and it sort of goes back to the warrior thing, is like, you just gotta show up no matter how tired you are, no matter how insecure you are, no matter how ill-prepared you feel, you know, how sad you are, how happy you are. Like, I, I left out one piece of the whole COVID story, and I'm not telling this to, like, sound tough or anything, but also, during this period, I got pneumonia. And, you know, I'm new to a job, and, you know, my wife was like, why are you getting out of bed? Why are you doing this stuff? I mean, I was the sickest I've ever been in my life. I didn't miss a Zoom. And at some point, I had to take a weight belt, right? And I'd put this weight belt around my ribs, they hurt so much, and I'd take this weight belt and I'd put it on as tight as I can, and I'd sort of struggle through my Zooms like this. And then, like, after the Zoom would end, I'd like, oh. And I think almost anything I've achieved in life, business-wise, music-wise, leaning into the discomfort of when, you know, my personal relationships aren't in a good space, is like just not quitting. I could have quit playing music forever. I could have quit my job. I could have quit my marriage. I could have quit life after losing my dad. Like just 
not quitting is a pretty good bet that you're gonna come out okay on the other side. Heck yeah. All right, as we're closing off, anything you wanna end with? I don't know, the, I, I think it's a good ending, right? That's a perfect <laughs> ending, man. All right, everyone, well, uh, this has been, it's a conversation that you know, we talked about doing yeah. this a long time ago, and here we are in San Francisco together in this like bizarre house that we're, that we're doing this house. in. Very cool. Um, man, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for doing this and always being like such an empathetic, active, like being an empathetic, active listener helps tell stories. Yeah. Awesome, man. All right, everyone, we will see you in the next one. My name is Aram Arslanian, and this is One Step Beyond. One.